Some of you saw the billboard or the sign that we have for the church outside and with a uh, statement, God behaving badly with a question mark. And when I presented this this week to Conrad to change the sign, he kind of looked at me and was like, you want to put what on the sign? That God's behaving badly? What this series is going to be about is that we're going to be addressing some of the statements that the world, and particularly atheists, would use to prove that the God of the Bible is not worthy of our worship. And it's going to be a seven-week series, taking a break for Father's Day, and the subjects will be at answering the questions, is God racist? Is God violent? Is God legalistic or is he forgiving? Is he distant or is he near? And I hope that you can be here for the whole series, but if not, we're going to be posting the audio of the messages on the website and a special playlist for you to be able to keep up with. And today we're going to start our series of God behaving badly. We're going to be looking at, is God angry or is he loving? If you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we'll be using this scripture today to study this very thought. And I want to open up with a question or a challenge to you, and that is to think for just a moment, as you've been reading your Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, have you looked at something that God has done in the Old Testament or even the New Testament as you study Revelation, when you look at it and say, man, this, this does not look like the God of love that we learn about through Jesus Christ. It just looks like, like God is being kind of, of really violent and, and really judgmental and, and really just kind of out there with the way he's doing things. And for a couple of years, I could get like that for a few months out of the years because I read the Bible in chronological order. And what that, what that reading plan does is it takes the Bible and it puts it in the historical order that the events in the Bible were in instead of just reading it through Genesis through Revelation. You might read some here and some here and there are in the historical order that the, um, the Bible history occurred in. So what would happen is you'd spend a good eight months or so reading only the Old Testament. And when you read about the way that God did things in the Old Testament, you would see that you can come to the opinion sometimes that God is, is kind of volatile. And he's kind of ready to see, seemingly ready to lash out at any little thing. And you start to live in fear instead of faith until you really study the context of why God does show, sometimes show judgment and wrath. One of the world's most renowned atheists is a man named Professor Richard Dawkins. And he wrote a book called The God Delusion, um, criticizing in particular the creation story. And in the, I believe it's in the preface of his book, he writes, and this is a quote from the book, that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Notice he calls the Bible fiction. Back to the quote, jealous and proud of it. God is petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infocidal, genocidal, philocidal, pestilicidal, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully, end quote. This is the way that Richard Dawkins looks 
at God. And it's not just his view, although I think that through his books and through his speaking, he's really influenced this view upon our, mo our modern culture, but it's the view of the unsaved world about God. And we're going to answer these questions and some of the accusations of Professor Dawkins this morning by exploring one of the instances of the scripture where God seemingly acted in a rational anger with a violent result. And speaking of this is exactly why this series is called God Behaving Badly? Question mark. Because of uh, scriptures in the Bible just like this, that it just doesn't seem to kind of make sense to our way of thinking. So let's read in our Bibles, First Sam, or Second Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and his men set up from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacom, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the ark stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this place, to this day, this, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was very afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever Come to me. And Father God, we ask, Lord, for your illumination to be upon our hearts, our minds, and our spirits. That as we study the, you and your ways this morning, that they will become clear in our minds. That we see you for everything you are. Not just the God of love that sent his only begotten son to save us from our sins, but also the God of holiness, the God of righteousness, and the God who deserves to be honored in every way, Lord. Father, be with us now. In your name, amen. So our big idea this morning is how do we reconcile the God that loved us so much that he gave his one and only son to die for us with a God who strikes a person dead for seemingly doing a good deed? How do we reconcile those two things? Well, the first thing we have to ask is why was God so angry that he did such a, a drastic thing in this case? <coughs> the first thing we have to consider is the history before this event. And that was that Israel had lost the ark in the first place, that they had to go back and get it from somewhere. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, you see that they go to battle with the Philistines. They go to battle initially, and they pretty much just, they get their butts kicked, would be the nicest way of putting it. They lost miserably in this battle. So they get the idea of saying, hey, let's go to the tabernacle. Let's get the ark of God and bring it out to battle with us. 
and there's no possible way that God is going to let us lose with the ark in front of us because he's supposed to be in that ark and we, he can't possibly let us lose as long as he is there. But we see there that this mindset is not honoring to God, is it? We're treating God kind of like a genie in a lamp. We're treating him like a, a pagan deity or like a good luck charm and showing an utter disrespect for him. It's saying, it was kind of saying to God, you know, God, we need you for this battle. We need you to be there to help us. We need you to be there and give us victory. But after that, we're sticking you back in the tent. That was the attitude of Israel at that time. The same attitude that the Crusaders had during the Crusades. They used to think that you could take 100 men against 1,000 a thousand Muslims and they were going to win because God's holy cross is there and there's no way that he will let us suffer defeat with his holy cross is out there. Well, they got slaughtered because of the way they were treating God. The thing that we have to remember is that the ark at that time in, in biblical history represented the very presence of God. The mercy seat, the place that was between the cherubim that were facing each other, and they were kind of over the ark, almost like a heart, a heart right there. He was right in there. That was a throne to him. And the Shekinah glory, the very powerful glory, all of his holiness, all of his power would dwell in that exact spot in the, um, among the children of Israel. And they were treating that presence with contempt in what they were doing with the ark. And if you read the story, the Philistines capture that ark. They, they still, they go and they slaughter the entire army of Israel and they capture the ark. The other thing that the ark represented is it represented the royalty of God. Now, the royalty of God was placed in there or I, I'm sorry, represented by what the ark was covered in. Now, it was made out of acacia wood, but what was it plated with? Pure gold. Gold always represents royalty. Even now, if you're going to give something to a king, it's, it's going to have to be um, something that would be gold or gold-colored or, or something that would indi indicate that you are respecting the royalty that they represent. It symbolized the invaluable worth of God to his people, this gold that was, that was around the house. And, royal, and the idea of royalty was key to understanding why God reacted the way that he did here. Royalty in David's day and through much of world history were never, ever, ever, ever placed on a cart. That was beneath them. If I was going to send for, a king wanted to come and visit, and he said, send for me, you know, a transportation, and I sent him a cart, a war would start over that. And because in David's day, and, and through much of history into the Middle Ages, royalty never rode on a cart because carts were considered to be a low form of transportation. I mean, you transport prisoners on carts. You transport dead people on carts. You transport food for cattle on carts. You do anything but transport a living person on a cart. The modern equivalent to this would be like if, you know, let's say Queen Elizabeth of England decided, you know what, I'm going to go and visit Whitehall Church. And I'm going to land in Eau Claire and you guys can send a car and come and get me. So we decide as a church 
to send me and my white van, if you've ever seen it, it's that, that piece of rust that rests in the driveway. It still kind of works. It gets me back and forth to work. Back door doesn't open anymore. The thing's all rusted through, and it just kind of hangs there. And, and it, it, it's, it's pretty pathetic looking, but it runs. It gets me back and forth to work, and I'm just going to drive it into the ground before I get a new one. So I take this car to go pick up Queen Elizabeth, and when I pick her up, I say, hey, Queen, how you doing? Jump on in. She calls, okay, shotgun. No. I know that's like, you know, a passenger seat would be the seat of honor for you, but I'll tell you what, why don't you crawl in back there? Oh, you want me to, you know, okay, open that door and I'll just slide into the back seat? No, 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 no. Back seat, eh, I want you to crawl over the middle seat and then over the back seat and sit in the luggage compartment. It's kind of cramped back there, but I, I think it'll be okay. You know, I'd open the back door, but it doesn't work. And I mean, this is, this is exactly what Israel was doing when they put the cart or put the, the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. God had a very prescribed and specific way of wanting him, of wanting that Ark carried because it, he cannot be seen as anything less than an earthly king, right? It says very specifically in the law that the ark was to be carried on the shoulder of Levites through poles and never to be touched. The same way royalty were carried by servants carry with poles in a box that was richly laid out in gold and fine linens and it was carried on the shoulder of servants. That's why the ark was to be carried on the shoulder of servants. In this case, the Levites, very specific servants who were set apart for this work. And this law was given because, again, God deserves the same, if not better, honor than an earthly king, doesn't he? If God would have allowed this incident to go unchallenged, the people would view him as less than an earthly king. And how tragic would that be? Not just for, for God's sake, for our sake, if we view him for less than what he is. If we don't have that kind of a place of honor for God in our own hearts. And this whole idea isn't just about God being a prima donna. It's not about God just saying, well, you better worship me or else. It's because he was protecting us through protecting the image of himself. And that's very important that God is seen as who he is in our in our hearts is exactly who he really is and not just our image of him because the image of our God affects our reverence to him if you think about it how we view God affects everything doesn't it it affects how we obey him if we view God too, so far over into love we just live however we want because we think he's going to love us no matter what and if we lit, we're all the way over here and we obey him because we fear him so much that we sit here and tremble before him all the time and we don't understand, um, we don't understand the love of God is shown through Christ Jesus, we just live in fear and we live in, in horror before God and we don't approach him in love. We can't even really truly worship him in spirit and in truth because we're just sitting here trembling in fear of him constantly, that we never express the love that he desires. Our love for him is driven by our image of him, even. You see, D David knew the law of God. All Hebrew boys, every single one of them, Hebrew boys especially, were taught Torah. 
which was the law of God, the first five books of the Bible. They were taught Torah, practically memorized Torah, before they turned 14. They participated in the weekly synagogue meetings. They were required to go to the tabernacle for several times a year to worship, to make that journey. So they, David knows the law. He can't claim ignorance of the law. He knows this backward and forward. He could not claim ignorance about how this ark was to be moved. And even if he did, even if David said, look, I kind of slept through that. You know, when I went through confirmation classes in the Lutheran church, honestly, I think I attended four out of two years. And they still confirmed me because I passed the test. But, they, but I mean, even, even if, if he was like me and he kind of slept through his whole bar mitzvah preparation and all that, he had Levites with him, the house of Abinadab. He had the Levites there with him who should have said, you know, king, we can't transport this thing on an ark. That's not honoring to our God. So David just made a decision, eh, I'm going to do this my way. It came over here on a cart. We have a new cart. We're going to toss it on a cart. Let's go. God's ways aren't all that important, are they? Well, David learned otherwise, pretty tragically for one of his followers and one of his loyal servants. Isn't that typical somewhat of the church today? We think we can just do it our way? Or even a Christian nowadays? Eh, we can just do it our way. We just make God in our own image. Maybe not the people here, but maybe the people in other churches. But it is pretty typical in, of Christianity today. God is very jealous of his relationship with us. It's something we have to understand. And God protecting us through protecting himself is that he is so jealous of his relationship with us. We see very dimly about our lives. We do. We, we don't even understand how the jealousy of God is protective of us. He wants us to be with him for all eternity. God has eternal perspective on things. Not just the little five-minute perspective many of us have on our lives. We see darkly as through a mirror, but he sees everything. Not only does he know the exact location of every atom and a star 100 billion light years away, but he knows every hair upon our head. And he's very personal about that. He's very jealous of that. He wants to spend eternity with us. And if that means he has to give us a light momentary affliction, so be it. Because a billion years from now, if we're with him, it's not going to matter, is it? If you think about it, that's what Gethsemane was all about. When Jesus struggled in Gethsemane, when he prayed to the point of sweating blood, that was a light of momentary affliction for him. But look at the joy that it brought out. God is worried about our eternal situation, not just our temporary physical one. And he will protect us through protecting the image of himself in whatever way he has to. Because again, he wants us to spend eternity with him. I want you to also consider the purpose of God's anger in this situation. God is holy. God is righteous. He cannot do that which is evil. So when someone would look at just this portion of the scripture, if you were to just take this out of the Bible 
and use and show it to somebody, what do you think your average person would say? Your God's a little nuts, isn't he? I mean, the guy, the, the ark was ready to, you know, it's supposed to be the sacred thing, ready to tip off a, a cart, and somebody grabs it to make sure it doesn't, and he kills him for it? I mean, what kind of God is that? But we have to consider that the, the history of the Bible has to be considered within the whole of the Bible, and that's where people like Richard Dawkins go wrong, or Christopher Hitchens. They go wrong in that they don't take the Bible as a whole. They try to take these little parts out of it and not understand it for the entire history that it is. The purpose of God's anger here was to show his holiness, to show his righteousness, to show his absolute worth to be worshipped in every and all situations. Think for a moment, where in the Bible does it say that God is love, love, love? Can you point out any part in the Bible where it says that God is love three times in a row? But what is a, what one attribute of God is shown in the Bible three times in a row? He is holy, holy, holy. The Hebrew word kadosh. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Whenever something is repeated in Hebrew, it is they don't really have... The, the, in the Hebrew language, they don't have the, the adjectives and the adverbs to, to really say that God is very holy. He is ultimately holy. They say holy, holy, holy for emphasis. And we sometimes focus so much on the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. We're so focused on, on John 3.16 that we, don't, we, don't, we forget the reason John 16 had to happen was because God is holy, holy, holy that he had to give his one and only son to pay the penalty for our sin. And God, that is why God's anger toward us, his, cho his children especially, is not always punitive. We think that God is punishing us. It isn't punishing so much as it is meant to be restorative. It is meant to restore us to right relationship with him. He seeks what is best for us in these situations. God's anger is also tied uh, strongly with justice. God is very interested in relieving oppression. Throughout biblical history, you see this uh, over and over again. And one of the, Christian, one of the criticisms that, that Dawkins and other athe or atheists would level against God is that he is genocidal. That throughout biblical history, particularly in the Old Testament, in the early Old Testament especially, it seems that God just tells them, hey, I want you to go and just wipe out these people. They're in my way. Wipe them out. Kill them all. Kill man, kill woman, kill children, kill the cat, the dog, the, the cattle, everything. Wipe everybody out. And if you were to take those sections of the Bible, particularly like in Joshua, where he was, he, Joshua was told, you will kill everything in there, you would come away thinking again, like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins would, that God is this crazy genocidal nutcase up in heaven that these stupid people for some reason worship. I mean, I would come to the same conclusion if I didn't have the Holy Spirit guiding me in all truth. So God's anger being tied to justice explains Joshua's campaign. And now come to understand why did Josh, God tell Joshua to wipe out everybody in Canaan? Well, to, do, to understand that, you have to go back 400 years to that time in Genesis chapter 15. It's where God gives a covenant to Abraham. And there's this little 
enigmatic statement that, that God kind of just puts in there that you really don't understand until you consider forward why Joshua did what he did. He said, he told, tells Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. This land that you see will be given to you. And, but first, your people have to go into slavery for 400 years. I'm not going to give it to you for 400 years. And there's a statement there that says, for the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. And when you consider that in the light of biblical history, God gave the Amorites 400 years to repent. Our God is very slow in anger. Very slow. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He gave them 400 years to give it right. And although the Bible doesn't record prophets going to them, I believe he sent prophets to them. Because you see it later on in the, in the prophetic books of the, Bible, of the Old Testament where he sent Nahum to Nineveh, he sent Jonah to Nineveh, he sent um, people to Edom, he sent people all over the place to warn these not Israel people to repent. So I, believe, I completely believe that he gave them 400 years to repent. Then you think about the other side of that. You say, well, wait a minute. You're promising me this land in 400 years, but in, for 400 years, my people have to suffer slavery? You know, my descendants are going to have to be, through, be slaves? You know, what kind of justice is that, God? Well, consider for a moment. Israel would have died in Canaan had God not brought them to Egypt. Either through starvation, through the, the huge famine that came upon the world that Joseph saved the world from, or through the rival clans killing them. Remember that Simeon and Levi, they went and uh, somebody violated one of their sisters, so they tricked some uh, tribe into circumcising themselves, and while they were still in pain, they went and slaughtered an entire tribe. Remember that? The rest of the Biblical history strongly points that the rest of the tribes around them were ready to go and wipe these people out. So although slavery seemed like a, a pretty serious thing that they had to go through, it saved the nation of Israel. And what did Israel do? It went from 40, 50, 60 people into millions during that time. And then God saw that Israel was wiped out for how they mistreated Israel or that Egypt was wiped out for how they mistreated Israel. So you see that, that it's all tied together, that God's anger, his wrath, has a purpose because he cannot allow the sin to go unchallenged and unchecked because that would be worse. It may be really bad for those people right then that are getting judged, but they've had ample opportunity to repent. If you consider for a moment that how slow God is to anger, he is very, 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 very slow. And we see here it is generally centuries before he acts on a nation. It's not like us. I had a partner once that would just fly off the handle at just about anything. I mean, you want to talk about road rage? Somebody would cut us off in the ambulance, and he'd flip the lights on on them and get them out back out of the way. And I'd, you know, stop that. Stop that. You're going to get us in trouble. You know, and... He, he'd be the kind of person that would, you know, put something in the microwave and yell at the microwave for taking too slow. I mean, he, would just, he was just one of these people that would fly off the handle at any little thing. And I thank God that he is not like that. Because you know what? Let's put God's anger into pers this perspective. In Genesis, he said that the soul that sins shall die. 
He said, on the day you eat, you will die. God has every right by his own word and what he has told us to kill us the next time we sin. So the next one of you that looks at your watch, I'm just kidding. <laughs> God, nobody's looking at their watch, I'm just saying. God has the right to judge us immediately when we sin. It's only by the shed blood of Jesus that we continue. So God is, is God angry or is he loving? And I would say the answer to this is yes. He is both. But understand what the purpose of anger is. It's about justice. It's about restoration. And it's about Romans 8.28 that says that, and we know in all things God works for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It is all about preserving us to be with him forever. Jennifer, if you could come up and just play. I want to just challenge you that when you're reading the Bible or experiencing what we would consider bad parts or bad times in life or when God doesn't make sense, I would like you to remember two things. One is John 3.16 and 17. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Remember that. That whatever you are going through right now, he did that for you already. And the second thing I would challenge you is to simply embrace that some things are going to be a mystery. Embrace the mystery and trust that God has you in the palm of his hand. Trust that God knows what you're going through and trust him in the midst of the storm. Embrace the mystery of that. One of the greatest prayers you can ever pray to God is, God, I don't understand why. I don't understand why the waves are smacking me in the face. I don't understand why the wind is ready to blow me over. I don't understand why it seems like the enemy is coming in like a flood and why my whole life, my whole, my whole everything in, in, around me seems to be being destroyed. But I do know this. I know, Lord, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to worship you in the midst of my not understanding because of who you are. And Father, we just come to you today. And I would ask, Father, that this word this morning will remove fear from our hearts. Lord, if we've accepted you as Lord and Savior, you have nothing but fatherly concern for us. You have nothing but good for us. Even if we consider what we're going through right now is bad, you have nothing but good for us. We know, Lord, that nothing can come to us except what is passed by your permission. So, Father, we just ask that you give us the ability to look past our circumstance. You give us the ability to see beyond the mountain that seems to be up in front of us of problems. And let us look to you again. 
to see you for who you really are and to live according to your purpose. Thank you for tuning in to the Whitehall Assembly of God podcast. This is Pastor John Oscar, the senior pastor of Whitehall Assembly of God. If these messages have blessed you, I just encourage you to subscribe to these podcasts and you'll be able to hear every single message that comes out of Whitehall Assembly. If you are interested, go on Facebook and like us on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page, Whitehall Assembly in beautiful Whitehall, Wisconsin. We also have a website that you can visit, whitehallassembly.org. Or you can come visit us in person. We are located on the corner of Dewey Street and Sheila Street in Whitehall, Wisconsin. We hope to see you there someday. If these messages have blessed you, I'd just like to encourage you to contribute toward us being able to continue to bring them to you. You can see that on our website, top right corner of the page. If you have any questions, you can contact me at my email, pastorjohnoscar at gmail.com. If you don't mind, I would just like to take a moment to pray for you before we go today. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that every single person who listens to these messages will be brought into a deeper relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let them experience the love and forgiveness that Jesus bought for us on Calvary's cross. I ask, Father, that you just use it to enrich their lives, that you use it to make them good ambassadors of the kingdom of God and bring them into your presence someday. Let them be fruitful, let them multiply, and let them be used mightily for you in these last days. Father, I commit them to your care now. In Jesus' name, amen. God richly bless you.